Happy Sabbath. Are you having a happy Sabbath so far? It's about to get happier, hopefully happierest, if that's a word, because we're going to explore what can only be regarded as the most significant event in human history, the Christ event, and a specific segment of that event. Now, I want to share with you that I became a follower of Jesus and a Seventh-day Adventist variety of a follower of Jesus on the premise of a single master equation, a theological premise with massive implications. This was the idea that was introduced into my consciousness as an 18-year-old boy, simply this, that love requires freedom in order to exist, and freedom creates risk. The equation is simple and profound in its implications. Love, freedom, risk. Now, if we pause to think through the implications of the relationship between love and freedom, it begins to dawn on us that there is something naturally embedded inherently in the equation. Love requires freedom in order to exist. But listen now. Freedom requires love to continue existing. To the degree that a people descend in their moral orientations toward one another, they become mentally and emotionally and relationally enslaved and thereby prepared for tyranny and dictatorship. All who are slaves internally are positioning themselves to be enslaved by political systems. It is only a free people who are capable of maintaining the parameters of their own freedom. Now listen, love, freedom, risk is not simply the equation the theological perspective that was introduced into my mind as a teenager that prompted my conversion to Christ, it is the theological premise of the entire edifice of Adventist theology. Sometimes people ask me, hey, you're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. You're a Seventh-day Adventist. What does that mean? What do you believe as a Seventh-day Adventist? And I say, and you're not going to like this at first, but just let me flesh it out a little bit. As a Seventh-day Adventist, I have not 28, but one fundamental belief. I believe literally just one thing. God is love. That's the whole thing. That's the entire structure. And it is from that one belief that everything else I believe derives. The Adventist theological system is pure genius, in my opinion, precisely to the degree that we understand that every single thing that we believe theologically is informed by the master equation of love, freedom, risk. Now, I'm under the impression that there is really, for the human mind, only one question that trumps all others. There is, to use a 
kind of Lord of the Rings term, there is one question to rule them all. If we can answer this one solitary question, we have the foundation upon which to answer all other important questions. George MacDonald, the Scottish preacher, poet, and, and fictional writer, traveling around the Scottish countryside preaching sermons, was the guy who informed the thinking of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien more than any other thinker. And there is one thing that George MacDonald said that I think bears careful consideration for us this morning in our context. Now listen carefully to his words. George MacDonald said, posing a question, is love or power the making might of the universe? Now listen, he who answers this question aright has the key to all righteous questions. Do you hear what MacDonald is saying? He's, saying? he's saying there's one question. If you can answer this one question, you have the premise for answering all other intelligent questions, all other righteous questions, all other good questions. And, and the, the one question is this. Is power or love the primary constituent of reality? Is power or love the core thing that defines what it means to be alive? Is it power that ultimately defines reality and all human relations and dynamics? Or is it love that defines all human relations and dynamics? Well, I think that he was on to something. Now, Jesus came into the world to work out the answer to this question. Literally, Jesus came into the world to answer the question before all of mankind for history, is love or power the thing behind the thing behind the thing that defines all things? Love or power? So Jesus comes into the world in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, and throughout the Gospels, Jesus came announcing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here right now. I am here in the world working out the implications of the kingdom of God. I am presently right here, right now, setting in motion the principles that will form a kingdom unlike anything the world has ever seen. Jesus says, repent. The Greek word is metanoia. It means, basically, in skateboarding terms, do a 180. Turn around and go the other direction. Everything you thought was true, just turn around and go the opposite direction. Now, we've narrowed the word repentance to a kind of personal salvation concept. For Jesus, it was that and much more. It was a political announcement of a new regime that was moving in an entirely different direction than anything the world had ever known. So you could literally translate, doing no injustice to the biblical text, you could translate the kingdom of God as the politics of God. In other words, the way God operates with regards 
to governing the world and the inhabitants of the world. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, welcome. We're glad you're here with us this morning or viewing the live stream. Those of you who are Seventh-day Adventists and many of you who are not are familiar with the prophecies of the book of Daniel. Now, I'm going to suggest to you a little bit of a paradigm shift, especially for those who are most familiar here this morning with the prophecies of Daniel. I'm going to suggest to you a perspective on the prophecies of Daniel that, for me, has been extremely enlightening. I'm going to suggest to you that the prophecies of the book of Daniel, also the prophecies of Revelation, we're not there yet, but the prophecies of the book of Daniel present to us, listen, a study in political contrast. The prophecies of Daniel present to us a study in contrast. Now you know that Daniel presents to us a succession of prophecies. There's the image in Daniel 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, divided Rome, and then the stone cut without hands that smites the image at the feet, crowns it to powder, and grows into a great mountain representing the eternal kingdom of God. And that stone cut without hands specifically crushes to powder all other kingdoms, that is to say, all other political ideologies and ways of ruling. When we come to the prophecy in Daniel that is opened in chapters 7 and 8, we are blown away to see a series of ravenous, brutal beasts. These beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the terrible beast with iron teeth and then the little horn that comes up out of it, these powers are described in verse 3, 2 and 3 of Daniel 7 like this. I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring upon the great sea. Another version says raging. Another version, the waves are crashing upon the great sea, that is, upon the human scene, upon the great sea of humanity and nations. The prophet Daniel is saying, listen, with regards to human systems of power, it's bloody and brutal. Coercion and force are the name of the game. The waves of the ocean are raging and roaring and crashing against one another, that's the sense that the prophecy is telling us we are to regard, the sense in which we are to regard these kingdoms. So what we're going to discover as we truck through Daniel's prophecy is that men govern out of the ideas that govern them. The great historian William Durant would later, much later, observe that our states being a composition of our individual selves are what we are on an elephantine level. So, so whatever we are at heart, we are collectively, corporately as a nation. That's the point. And so the book of Daniel is telling us that, listen, human beings govern out of the ideas that govern them, mentally, emotionally, and relationally. Listen, let's just have a little um, 
a marriage seminar here, a family seminar, ever so briefly, a parenthetical statement. Whatever you are in your home, in your most intimate relational dynamics between husband and wife and parents and children, whatever you are behind closed doors in your home, you are truly, regardless of the masks you wear on Sabbath morning or in the public square. And we all ultimately work out as a collective the implications of our characters. So we're all governing according to what we are. Men, human beings, govern out of the ideas that govern them. Now listen, and there are only two governing principles available. There aren't three, four, five. There aren't, it's not multiple choice. You really only have two ways of potentially being human, individually and collectively as a community. So as we move through Daniel 7, we encounter that as these four beasts are clashing and crashing upon the waves of the sea, it is bloody, brutal business to be nations void of the Spirit of God. And then we have, in verse 9, a dramatic narrative shift. And here's the narrative shift. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is the supreme judge of all the earth and human affairs. The context here that we rarely take note of is the backdrop of the clash of nations by manipulative and coercive principles. And with that as the backdrop, God, the judge of all the earth and human affairs, is seated upon the throne, the Ancient of Days. He's described, and it says that his throne was like a fiery flame. It's wheels a burning fire. Verse 10, notice very carefully that a fiery stream issued forth and came forth from before him, a thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Watch this now. The court was seated and the books were open. Contextually, the court is seated and the books are open to analyze, to assess, to judge the affairs of brutal and bloody nations. We've narrowed the judgment down to the individual case of the human being coming in review before God. The context of Daniel is the manner in which human beings as nations relate to one another is coming in review before God. Now watch this. Verse 11 says, Daniel informing us, I watched in the context of the Ancient of Days taking the throne, the court is seated, the books are open, the next words. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body given to the burning flames. I watched, now here's the contrast, and as I was watching in the night vision, behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He came, this son of man figure, he came to the ancient of days and they, the angelic hosts, brought this son of man near before him, before the ancient of days on the throne. The heavenly court has convened before the supreme judge of the earth to assess and judge between governing systems. And the Son of Man emerges in the vision, which is to say, the Son of Man emerges on the scene of human history in real time, because this is prophetic. The Son of Man emerges on the scene of human history to precisely govern differently than all the other nations have governed. That's the prophecy. It is a study in contrast. It is a study in contrast between two distinct ways of ruling, two distinct kinds of kingdoms, two distinct views of power and its exercise, two distinct perspectives on relational dynamics. Jesus is coming into the world as the Son of Man. Please note that term. We're coming back to it. Jesus comes into the world as the Son of Man in order to inaugurate and set in motion a whole new way to be human. A whole new... He's the second Adam. He's the new man. He's Israel now recapitulated. He is the kingdom of God. So the prophecy of Daniel goes on in verses 13, 14, and 15 to say that the kingdom of the whole earth that had been in the possession of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the terrible, the kingdoms of this world that had been under their dominion verses 14 and 15 tell us now come into the possession of the Son of Man, and these words are written by Daniel, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. This is the one kingdom that has inherently within it the potential for eternal perpetuation, the perpetual motion of self-giving love is the only power powerful enough to sustain human society. So Jesus comes into the world as the Son of Man, and he's going to take dominion out of the possession of these other powers, and his dominion is going to be forever. And then we have this very, very curious term in chapter 8 of Daniel and verse 25. Speaking of the little horn and ultimately all the powers that have dominated the scene of human history, the scripture says that these powers by the Son of Man will be, here's the words, 825, broken, broken without human means. Broken without human means. Jesus is going to take dominion over the earth, but not by the same principles and relational dynamics with which they've been operating. The world doesn't need another one like them, but one who is utterly different than them. 
Jesus isn't going to rule like them just with more of the same power. He's not going to simply flex his might and muscle and coercive power more dramatically than they have. He's not them just bigger and more powerful. He's nothing like them. He is inaugurating an entirely new way to be king, to be kingdom. Jesus comes in the world as the ultimate anti-king, setting up an upside-down kingdom. He comes into the world and he proceeds to break the powers of this world, not with manipulation and force, but by truth and love. Jesus was the king nobody expected. When he came into this world, Jesus dashed to pieces all messianic expectations. Nobody ever saw this coming. They had no idea. Earthly empires rise and fall, but Daniel says his kingdom it will go on and on forever, and the begging question is, why? What, what makes his kingdom perpetual and eternal and theirs not? Well, Jesus, when he comes into the world, tells us precisely. Have, after announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here, it's now, he proceeded to actually teach us what his kingdom looks like. We don't, we don't need to guess. We don't need to wonder. He has, he has articulated for us exactly what the difference is. In Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 25, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, think Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, think Egypt, think all of the empires that have ever ruled the earth. The, this is amazing, you know, this is a given, you know, this is, you know this, this is obvious, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Note the words, over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Two times Jesus uses the term over them. This, this is what characterizes the kings and the kingdoms of the world. It is the power over orientation that we broke down and explored last evening. Jesus very specifically defines the modus operandi of all empires, of all nations, as a power over orientation in the text. And then in verse 26 leaving no room for guessing, Jesus says, yet it shall not be so among you. We're doing something different. But whoever desires, he says, to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man. Have you heard that before? Jesus is deliberately quoting Daniel 7 and the judgment of the nations scene. He is appropriating the text to himself as Messiah. And he's saying, 
Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man, back in Daniel, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So there are really only two ways to be before us, politically and individually. You and I have before us either the love of power or the power of love. And in every single relationship, in every relational maneuver of every day, you are opting in or out of the kingdom of God by the love of power or the power of love. So now let's just fast forward. I mean really fast forward. Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. And he sets in motion the principles of that kingdom. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is the moral, relational ethic of his kingdom. As we're going to discover later on, the cross of Calvary is simply Jesus living out the Sermon on the Mount to its logical extension. Jesus died on the cross in order to live out the Sermon on the Mount. But let's fast forward now from Jesus and the announcement of the kingdom. Let's fast forward to July 4, 1776, where these words were ratified when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the law of nature and nature's God entitles them, a decent Respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Let me translate that for you. The founding fathers in this Declaration of Independence are saying, in so many words, we are breaking ranks with Great Britain and we're going to, in this document, explain why. We're going to give a decent respect to the minds of human beings so that nobody is left guessing as to why we are breaking with Britain. And then a series of complaints. By the way, the Declaration of Independence is only 1,458 words at an average reading speed of 200 words per minute. You can read it in seven minutes. You should read it once a day until you know the thing backwards and forwards. Just seven minutes. You should know what this says. So all of the reasons are delineated. We're going to respectfully explain to the world why it is that we're breaking ranks politically and asserting our independence. We're going to explain. Boom, 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 boom. Bullet points. And then the final one. A prince, by which they mean King George III, a prince whose character is thus marked by these things that we've just outlined, these violations of our dignity, our humanity, our economy, our people. A prince 
whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. And it is those words that I want you to latch your mind onto. These individuals were realizing that there's only one kind of ruler that is fit to rule what kind of people? A free people. They're saying to King George, we are inherently, by God's design, free, psychologically, emotionally, to the very bedrock of our beings, volitionally, we are free agents, and you're not worthy to rule us because you do not acknowledge the inherent reality of our liberty. We reject you as our ruler because you are unfit in character to rule a free people. You guys think this through very carefully with me. These words, these words are so profound, so bold in their context. Listen, listen. That we are presently this very moment experiencing the reverberating effect of this declaration. We take so much for granted the fact is, the world to this point had never, ever, ever known anything other than monarchy as a ruling system. Monarchy, mono, one, ruling all. At the whims of their character. So these people come along and they say, continuing on, we therefore, representatives of the United States of America. Representatives. They're working out the implications of their freedom by recognizing we're not rulers speaking down to our population. We are representatives of our population. We're speaking for them to you, King George. These aren't our ideas. These are ideas that are embedded within the fabric of the American way of thinking. They're saying. So as representatives of the United States of America in general congress assembled, we are appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. They are either unwittingly or intentionally referencing Daniel 7. They're saying, we are turning politically, governmentally, to the judge of all the earth who will be in favor of our cause toward human liberty. And so they go on and declare their independence, the Declaration of Independence. And then, and then, the final war was waged and won under the commander-in-chief, George Washington. Independence had been declared, the wars had been fought, the final war was won, and then the unthinkable occurred. The unthinkable happened. The one man who could be the ruler of the new world refused 
to rule his fellow men. Now, the story is told, and there are two versions of it that bear veracity, that King George, upon hearing of the final battle, recognized that Great Britain had lost, and while sitting for a painting with American painter Benjamin West, spoke words that were reported in the journals of Rufus King, who was one of the signers of the Declaration. And as Benjamin West, the painter, said, Hey, George, did you hear? The war is won by the Americans. George Washington and his troops are victorious. But, but, but George, did you hear? His men rallied around him and said, You're our new king. And he said, No, I'm not. And nobody ever will be. And supposedly, King George spoke these words. If he, George Washington, does that, having the potential to rule and choosing not to, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. That's a little bit of a paraphrase, but true to the sentiment that's actually worded in King's letters. King George said, more accurately, George Washington is the most distinguished of any man living and the greatest character of the age. Meaning what exactly? Obviously, he had problems. He was a slave owner. That's not a problem. That's evil. But things were unfolding in the great scheme of things and the prophecies of Daniel unfolding so that the principles of liberty are being worked out against the tide of human thinking and feeling running against the grain of freedom. In one of the most ingenious things ever written by a human being in a single sentence, an author that many of you will be familiar with, Ellen White, wrote these words. Romanism is the religion of human nature. Don't be too quick to locate Romanism, that is the inclination to dominate and to rule the conscience of others. Don't be too quick to locate it all out there somewhere. It's in here somewhere. We're all inclined to dominate. And maybe Ellen White was actually giving a loose translation of Martin Luther's statement when aligning himself against Romanism, said, I fear the Pope of self more than the Bishop of Rome and all his cardinals. The fact is that George Washington was not the greatest man in the world. He was simply acting out in that moment the implications of the greatest man who's ever lived, and that is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a very real sense in which, wrap your mind around this, that the Constitution of the United States of America, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, with its amendments to the Constitution, listen, listen, 
There's a very real sense in which the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are documents that are simply and profoundly the outworking of the gospel of Christ in the form of governing documents. The concepts and ideas in those documents hail from Christ and the subsequent articulations of the Apostle Paul. The very notion that all men are created equal before their creator to whatever degree at any given moment the mind at the conscious level acknowledges that all men are created equal and simultaneously somehow can subjugate others as in the owner, ownership of other human beings is a mystery beyond human comprehension except to say that the fact is that human beings are inherently built psychologically and emotionally and relationally for liberty. And to the degree that we ideologically and politically recognize it, sometimes our actions are not catching up with our declarations. And the faster we get there, the better. Now, the gospel in the form of these governing documents leads us to a conclusion that I want to close with, and it is this. At Seventh-day Adventists, we are extremely, extremely blessed to have a religious liberty, ministry, awareness, activists among us who fight for religious liberty, liberty of conscience. Listen, listen. Religious liberty is not a piece of what we do as a people. It's the whole deal. Listen. Religious liberty, liberty of conscience, is the gospel. The only reason Seventh-day Adventists believe in religious liberty and liberty of conscience is because we have, by the grace of God, consciously or maybe unconsciously, I don't know if you've ever thought it through, but why do we... My friend Sean Brace, you know what he says? He says that our eschatological belief system regarding religious liberty does not hail from our views on prophecy as much as from our views on the character of God. I began by sharing with you that my conversion to Christ and to Seventh-day Adventism was premised upon the love-freedom-risk equation. I shared with you that I have one fundamental belief as a Seventh-day Adventist. God is love. That's the whole deal in embryonic form. And everything else works out from there. The reason Seventh-day Adventists believe so strongly in religious liberty is because we have worked out the implications of the gospel. The only way that those individuals could have framed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was that they were consciously, subconsciously, more or less, living in the trajectory of the principles that Jesus had set in motion and that Paul had articulated. The world had only ever known monarchy until the American experiment. But wait a minute, that's an exaggeration. There was another time in history when there was a deliberate effort to erase monarchy from the face of the earth. God called a people together and named them Israel. 
Israel was a people who were, in fact, like the American experiment, Israel was a social justice experiment among the nations. God specifically told Moses, I want you to instruct the people directly as a prophet. And Moses understood, I am not to be your king. I am not to be your ruler. I am to prophesy the knowledge and the wisdom of God. So in other words, God wanted to govern his people by a prophet, which is to say God wanted to govern his people by knowledge towards self-governance and independence. Well, you know how the story goes with the Saul and David fiasco. Yes, David was a part of the fiasco. How do we know? Because the biblical record tells us very explicitly that after the people said, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations, God pushed back through the prophet and said, no, I'm not giving you a king. No, we want a king. No, you don't because you don't understand the implications of monarchy. No, we insist we want a king. So God through the prophet said, okay, okay, let me explain to you what this is going to look like. If I give you a king, if I allow you to have a king, he will take your sons off to war, your women, your daughters as concubines, and tax your lands. The Mosaic system of law was a system of non-taxable lands in which there was individual ownership for every Israelite, and even if you became indebted in the Jubilee system, which was a grace reset button politically, the land always comes back to the original owners. It's more like leasing because you're in financial trouble. There's no such thing as transferring land in the Mosaic system. You want a king? He's going to take your sons off to war. He's going to take your, your girls as concubines, and he's going to tax your lands. And these people, not at this moment in history, firing on all cylinders, said, we still want a king. So God conceded to the will of the people and gave them a king. That king was Saul. Saul was a disaster, and that's an understatement. Then came David. David was a man after God's own heart and a psychological dysfunctional basket case. Simultaneously. Read Psalm 51 for the story. Now here's the thing. David meanders through his entire political military career as a monarch. Comes to the end of his long life and political military career and he says, I want to build a temple for the worship of God. That's going to be my, my final defining act. I want to build a temple for the worship of God and God says through the prophet, David, you, you can't build a temple that represents me because you don't represent me. Ultimately, yes, I conceded to the wishes of the people. Yeah, I'm beholden to your moral immaturity and your social degradation. Yeah, I've got to allow for things that I fundamentally hate 
But in the final analysis, David, you can't build a temple for the worship of God because you're a man of war and there's blood on your hands. God in this moment is deliberately distancing himself from what he himself has allowed because of the free will love risk factor embedded in the human matrix. God is saying at this point, you can't represent me with blood on your hands because listen, the biblical narrative tells us that God is fundamentally against war. God is fundamentally against monarchy. God, in fact, in the biblical narrative is never referred to in monarchical terms until after the kings of Israel. And at that point, it is God appropriating the monarchical term and office in order, messianically, ultimately, to overturn it. To superimpose over monarchy benevolence and service and humility and love. So when Jesus comes into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is setting in motion a whole new way to be human because the fact of the matter is, in the way Jesus is communicating to us, the only person worthy of occupying the throne is the one who occupies the cross. The only one worthy of ruling is the one who doesn't want to rule. As I shared with you last evening, if there's one thing God Almighty and all his almightiness doesn't want, it's control. The God of Scripture is a God of delegated power. He gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. They gave that dominion over to a foreign invading force that operates on the principles of coercion and deception. Jesus is in the process of taking the world back for truth and love. And the fact is that as the most revolutionary political figure in history, Jesus transcends all political power dynamics. Jesus is the anti-king of the upside-down kingdom. Jesus came into the world turning water to wine at a social event and saying the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus came into the world playing with children announcing the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus came healing the sick, touching the untouchables, eating at the tables of the off-scouring of the earth in quote marks, judged so by the religious elite. Jesus came forgiving sinners and every step of the way with every relational maneuver toward love and benevolence and forgiveness and service announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what it looks like in action. Jesus is the one and only true king and to the degree that any people on the earth appropriate Jesus 
for political ideologies to the left or the right, Jesus is blasphemed. His kingdom transcends the entire edifice of human ruling dynamics. He's nothing like what we see taking place either in American politics or in any political regime down through history. Martin Luther King Jr., in a single sentence, encapsulated the trajectory upon which Jesus set the world. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That's the bottom line. Jesus is that final word. He is the word of God. He is the one who has set the game rules and the parameters for a whole new kind of king and kingdom. And when he comes again to receive those who have sworn allegiance by their baptism to his kingdom, we will witness the unfolding of the love of God, the non-coercive, non-manipulative love of God as the only sustainable, ruling, governing principle that has ever been on display before the world. Just love, 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 and more love into eternity future. Everything that feels hierarchical will feel confusing to us. Because there at the center, serving all of us will be the most powerful person in the universe. Jesus is our king and our allegiance to him is an allegiance to liberty of conscience. Thank you.